welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, as um, all your churches gather um, around the world, Lord, we pray that you would bless them. We pray for the other churches in our valley and uh, in this city. And we pray also for your church that's gathered around the world and all these other places. We just thank you, Lord, that you have given us an opportunity to be a part of what you're doing globally um, there in uh, the Middle East and also in Cambodia and other places. We just thank you so much for this great opportunity, Lord. And uh, we pray as we open your word that you would give us hearts that are open and desiring to hear from you, whether that's a word of comfort or a word of rebuke, that we would take it all as uh, a savory word from you, that it would be something that our hearts would desire and long for is to hear from you. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be here in First Peter. We're looking at verses 13 through 21. And, um, and it's important, guys, when we do this, that you actually like look at the text. Okay, I think this is super important. This week we've had a lot of really nice sunsets, you know, and because we had actual clouds, which is rare, and so we could have actual sunsets, and they've been awesome, and sometimes I'll be in the backyard, and Ellie's really good about calling me out there, you got to see this one, you know, and we'll go out there, and I'll be like, this is amazing, and sometimes I'll shout back to the house, like, you got to see this, and they're like, what is it, sunset, okay, you know, and it's like, no, I can't just describe it to you, that's not how it works, you got to come out and look at it, and the thing is, guys, when I show you what's in this passage, you have to look at it. You have to circle and underline and see the sunset and enjoy this thing, right? So it is very important to my joy that you would look at the text while we're doing this, whether it's on your phone or whatever. And I think it's important to your joy, but do it for my joy, if nothing else. So here we are. We're in 1 Peter 1, uh, 13 through uh, 21. And the theme here is holiness. The theme is our pursuit of holiness. And there's three commands in this section, but the dominant one is in verse 15. It says, be holy in all your conduct. You say, well, what is holiness? Holiness is being set apart. That's what the word means. It means to be set apart. And um, God is holy. We see in uh, 1 Samuel, we see Hannah. Hannah said this about the Lord. She said, there is none like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Holiness refers to God's moral perfection, but also the fact that he is distinct. He's separate. He's different than any other person or being. And so it's about his perfection and his separateness. God's holiness means that he is separate from all sin and fully devoted to his own glory. Okay, you're like, wow, that's intense. So he's separate from sin and he's fully devoted to his own glory. And you say, well, I don't know if that's a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a good thing because God is the most satisfying being in the universe. And so it is good and right and important that he make that clear that he is all-glorious, all-satisfying, the source of all joy. It would actually be wrong if he pointed his glory onto something else or someone else because he needs to highlight himself because he is the source of all joy. He is the most satisfying being in the universe, and so he's devoted to his glory. And God desires to set us apart as well, to set us apart from the world for himself so that we can be separate from sin but also fully devoted to his glory. And when we talk about holiness, there's two ways you can look at holiness. There's positional holiness, and there's um, practical holiness. Positional holiness would be the moment you trusted in Christ, you became holy in the sense that before God, your sin was removed, and he was distinctly yours. 
So you're positionally holy. Nothing changes that. That doesn't grow. It's 100% when you trust in him. You're positionally holy. You're fully his. You are his possession. You are his, a part of his people. You're his child. Practical holiness, though, is as we learn to actually practically live as his people, his possession, his children. Practical holiness is a holiness that your neighbors can see and appreciate. Okay? It's you practically learning to live separate from sin and fully devoted to God's glory. Practical holiness makes you a blessing. It blesses both God and the people around you. It's a blessing to your family. It's a blessing to your friends. It's a blessing to your coworkers. It's a blessing to your actual neighbors. Sometimes we like to spiritualize the word neighbor, like the people that live next to you. I think it was Spurgeon that said, if a man becomes a Christian, even his dog should be able to tell, okay? That there's a difference in the life that's seen in the home. It's seen right in actual normal life. Verse 15 says that the Lord wants us practically to be holy in what? All our conduct. The Lord wants every part of our lives to be fully devoted to him. That's like our thoughts, our emotions, our wants, our words, our actions, all these things would be fully devoted to the Lord. All these things would be holy. Why? He sees all these things. You realize that the Lord sees your thoughts and emotions and the inner wants of your heart as much as he can hear or see what you're doing? Every part of him is something that he sees equally vividly, and so he desires holiness in all these areas. And so we've been looking at this series, which is called Keep Going. You got these cool cards. Oh, by the way, thanks to Miyuki for, and Ben for making the image. And then Lee kind of set it all up on the card. You guys are great. Really thankful for that. Um, as we look at this whole idea of keep going through First Peter, when he wants us to keep going, he's not just saying that we should just exist. Okay? He's not calling us to just not walk away from the Lord. He's not calling us to just not you know, end our lives. He's calling us in the midst of suffering to set apart more and more of our lives to honor him. We're being molded through suffering in such a way that every part of our lives is becoming more and more under God's rule. How do we do that? And how do we do that practically? Because I could spend like 30 minutes just saying like, you should be holy. It says you should be holy. Why aren't you holy? Okay, go be holy. Okay, we could do that, but that wouldn't be as helpful to you. Peter's super helpful in this text. He actually is going to disciple us in this because he shows us there's two things we need to grow in holiness. And the two things are, we need to change the habits of our mind, and we also need to change the wants of our heart. And so there's a mental part and there's a heart part. There's a changing the way you think, and there's a changing of what you want. That's actually a really important part of biblical truth is that it isn't just a change of actions. It's a change of your wanting, right? So we need to confront what we think about and what we value. So first, let's look at changing the habits of your mind. Look at verse 13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first of the three commands in here. And the command is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Guys, what we do with our minds is hugely important in how we grow spiritually. You have to start with the mind. Uh, to not take attention to your thoughts and your mind, it, it, it's never going to succeed. And I have a diagram. So, this is a diagram you probably saw before, but hey, it's a good thing. So, um, let me just draw a couple parts of you. So this isn't like an anatomical diagram. Okay, this is a functional type thing. So first we got your heart. Okay, your heart is here. Your heart, this is your wants. 
your wants, the things you desire. Okay, that's your heart. Then you've got your mind. We got mind, and these are your um, your thoughts, the things you think about. This is a part that you have a lot of control over. Actually, the heart is a little more indirect. And then you have over here your actions and your words. Okay, and a lot of religion just focuses on action and words. Actually, the Lord wants this whole thing. <laughs> this is holy in all your conduct. And let me just to kind of describe how this works a little bit. The heart, that's that inner part of you. It's where your wants are from. Your heart actually affects your mind and your thoughts, right? Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and things like that, right? comes out of the heart, okay? Um, your mind, though, has a, a, an effect on your heart as, as well in, in a reverse way here. Because um, Romans 12 talks about... Um, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that as we change our thoughts, the things we think about, it actually has a renewing effect on our hearts. That's actually what's going on here in verse 13. And then our thoughts, we, you know, we decide to do things, and, and, and we have actions and words, and those come from our thoughts, right? So it would be hugely helpful to focus on this, because it has effect on that. But sometimes things come right out of our heart without kind of, kind of bypassing our minds, don't they? Jesus said, out of the heart the mouth speaks, Right? And so you might say something to a spouse or a friend or something like that and be like, oh, I didn't mean that. I don't know where that came from. Jesus is like, well, I know where it came from. It came out of your heart. You know? Your heart is like a glass that's filled to the brim with water. And when people bump you, things come out. Those are things that were in there. <laughs> Those things didn't come from your mouth. They came from your heart. And so you can see here the importance of the mind because the mind is in your thoughts. That's the part that you have actually the most control over. That's something that he's calling us to right here. He's calling us to change what we think about, to grow in holiness. Um, we need to change the habits of our mind. Peter gives us two really helpful illustrations here about doing that. They're not commands, but they're, they're kind of linked to the command here. And the two things are girded loins and mental sobriety. First, the girded loins. The ESV is a wonderful, beautiful translation. I love it. That's why I use it. I love this actual actual Bible, even. Um, but it doesn't do a great job here. Um, what it does here is it kind of obscures a very helpful image because it's awkward to say. When I say girded loins, everybody got a little nervous. Like, what is that, you know? And so the ESV puts it, like, off to the side. If you have a King James or you have a New King James, it's right there for everyone to see, the girded loins, okay? But in the, in the ESV, it says, prepare your minds for action. It's weak. It doesn't really have the image that's here. In the King James or in the margin notes, it says, gird up the loins of your mind, which sounds super strange, but it's super helpful. And I actually have a nice slide about girded loins. It's going to be put up here. I hate to kind of interfere with your view of the girded loins. Um, so what was girding up your loins? Okay, this is from the Art of Manliness uh, blog. And to gird up the loins in biblical times was they wore these kind of long flowing robes, right? They would hang down. And if you were going to run or fight or something like that, you're just going to trip over them, right? And so when you needed to prepare for action, whether you're going to run, you're going to fight some guy or whatever, you would take these long robes and you would, you would tuck it up from under your legs like this, and then you would bring it around and you would tie it. It looks like a big diaper, right? See what he did here? Tucked it under, he tied it, and then look at him with the sword. So he looks cool at the end, right? In the beginning, you're like, I don't know about this guy. And then at the end, he's like super fierce. Um, do you see how this would relate to your mind? Right? This is how it relates to your mind. Like those long robes, you can't just let your thoughts dangle wherever they will land. Okay? You can't let your thoughts do whatever it wants. Why? You're going to trip on them. Right? All these thoughts that you have that you're not kind of girding up and tightening up, they're dangling around. And what happens when you, you know, need to fight the enemy spiritually 
or you need to you know, pursue the Lord in some way, you can't do it. You're falling over. Why? You've taken no care of your mind. You know, you got all these thoughts dangling around. You can't do that, guys. You got to tighten it up, right? We need to repent of the thoughts that are in our minds that are um, thoughts that are keeping us from hearing the voice of God through his word or, or seeing the enemy's attacks. Like, we got to tighten this thing up. So you guys are wandering around and falling over, and it's like, well, no wonder, you know? You got to tighten this up, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. Isn't that cool? So in your, if you have an ESV, circle the margin note that says gird up the loins of your mind. It's super cool. And then you could like maybe draw a diagram. I don't know. This is pretty. This will be available for you later. <laughs> have you guys ever noticed, though, with your mind that it's so much easier to learn and remember things that have nothing to do with the Bible? Like you're great at probably sports stats, you know, and you got all this, you the whole history and stuff like that. No problem, right? Song lyrics. I have a ridiculous amount of song lyrics. It takes great restraint for me not to quote a song every single week in my sermon. Mostly you two. Um, but you could, song lyrics are easy. Movies, right? I grew up, one of our family movies, I won't tell you one of them because, you know, they weren't believers then and my parents weren't. And so we watched all kinds of stuff. But the one I can tell you is Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So I have the entire movie in here. Pee Wee's Big Adventure, everything. I could recreate it. If I was on an island or whatever, we could do a, a play of it. You know, I got the whole thing in here. Um, with our kids, it's been uh, Nacho Libre, you know, everything. And that takes great restraint for me to quote Nacho Libre every week, too. Princess Bride, you know, we got that. So you have some family films, right? It's all in there, every single line, because I've seen these things like 50, 60 times. It's crazy. Um, but then it takes great mental effort for some reason to remember spiritual things, to remember God's word, to, to, to keep our minds focused on that. It's like, it's like the Lord's got these great like, jewels for you, right? And he hands them to you, and you, you put out this wet paper bag. And you're like, I'm ready for them. And he drops them in, they go right at the bottom. And you're like, I tried. Let's try again. You know, it's like, what is that? You know, guys, it's not an intellectual issue. These truths actually are not hard to understand or remember. It's a spiritual issue, isn't it? You remember in the, the parable of the sower? You remember the raven comes and plucks it out? This is like, we're under attack. That's why it's hard to remember these things. You're like, man, why can't I remember the gospel? It seems pretty straightforward. Why can't I apply it to my life? It's a spiritual thing, guys. It's a spiritual battle. And it requires focused attention. And in our culture, guys, a lot of even secular um, uh, thinkers right now are talking a lot about the importance of attention. That focused attention, a skillful management of your attention is one of the most important things you can have to live the good life and the key to improving virtually any area of your life. Focused attention. I mean, even secular thinkers are talking about it. There's a lot of books about that right now. Um, Deep, Deep Work is one of them. It's a great book. Secular book, amazing as far as, like, focus. We need to focus, right? Um, especially, guys, we live in a very difficult time for this, especially if you're on social media of any kind. Okay, And I know I talk about social media a lot, but you do it a lot, so I'm going to talk about it a lot. If that's where you are, that's what I'll talk about. And that's where I am too. I mean, I understand it. But um, Columbia law professor Tim Wooset calls those social media companies, he calls them attention merchants. They're attention merchants. Isn't that interesting? That's what they are. You know, watch these latest like Facebook videos and you're like, remember how it was when this first came out? Like, we want to connect you to people. I'm sure. I'm sure that's what it's about. I'm sure it's about them caring about our memories and things like that more than we do. But guys, have you ever wondered why social media services are free? They're actually very expensive to do. You know why they're free? Guys, anytime a product is free, you're the product. Right? 
Anytime a product is free, you're the product. Guys, these companies, they mine your attention the way coal companies mine coal. That's what they do. They're attention merchants. And I'm not saying quit them or whatever. You just need to know that. You need to be real clear about that. They're attention merchants. Um, their goal is to capture as much of your time and attention as they can and then sell it to people. It's just important you know. You want to keep doing it, it's fine. I'm not saying it's sin or anything like that. I'm just saying being aware that their goal is to capture as much of your time and attention and sell it to people. Okay? And your time and attention actually are your life. Right? Your life is only made up of time and attention. So their goal is to capture as much of your life and sell it to other people. Okay? So just be aware of that. What would we call that, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago? People that would capture as much of your time and attention and sell it to other people. Just be aware. That's all I'm saying. We need to focus our attention, guys. It says gird up the loins of your mind. Um, you can't let your thoughts just hang wherever, they're, wherever they land. You're going to trip. You've got to take charge of your mind. I think a really important step in growing in holiness is taking personal responsibility for the things you dwell on. Right? Take personal responsibility for what you let your mind dwell on. You actually do have control in that area. It's one of the, the few areas that there's very clear direct control. We need to be mentally vigilant, which is what the second image is about. Check this out. He says being sober-minded. He isn't talking just about physical sobriety here. Of course, if you're getting drunk, um, that's sin, and you're not going to be sober-minded. But the sober-mindedness here is more than that. Sober-mindedness is really about avoiding anything that dulls your spiritual senses, right? We need to be very honest about this. We need to be honest, and we need to learn to understand ourselves, to know ourselves, to know what things dull my spiritual senses, what things make me less alert to the enemy's attacks, what things make me less sensitive to the Spirit's conviction, This is about not partaking in things that are going to medicate you and dull your spiritual perceptions. Now, of course, that could be alcohol, that could be pills, that could be things like that, right? It could also be constant shopping, you know? So another thing you might do on your phone is just constantly, and it's not that you're buying things. It doesn't really matter. It's the thought of constantly looking at things and thinking about purchasing things. It's a way we medicate, right? I do it. I mean, you know, kind of having a bad day, need something to do, look on my phone, and you, you medicate by constantly shopping online. Um, it could be the food you eat. You know that Jonathan Edwards, he lived in the 1700s, and he was intense, but he did this. He kept a log of how what he ate affected his abilities to, to have joy in the world to come. Okay, so he would keep a log of what he ate and then kind of rate how his spiritual perception was that day. He wanted to so fine-tune his diet so that he could have maximum meditation on the glory of God. Isn't that trip? That's amazing. We could do that. We could maybe do that with our entertainment, right? You think about your entertainment, you think about maybe the way it dulls your, your sense of maybe right and wrong, or your sense of what's biblical, or what's good, or what's holy, right? Um, dulls your perceptions. And I am not against any of these cultural things I'm mentioning. I'm just saying you need to know yourself, right? You need to understand and be realistic about it. There was a guy um, I was meeting up with back when we did college ministry, and we were talking about music and stuff. I didn't bring it up, but he was bringing up music, and he was talking about, you know, there's some songs and stuff like that that I need to stop listening to. And I thought it was going to be something like straight up, you know, obviously bad kind of stuff. And he goes, you know, i got to stop listening to John Mayer. And I was like, what? And he was like, well, you know, I'm a single guy, and it's a lot of kind of emotional, romantic stuff. And he's just like, it's not good for me right now. And I was thinking, like, we're done here with this discipleship thing. I'm like... You're either going to disciple me or you can move on. But this is a guy that, like, knew his heart, you know? Like, work's done here. We only met twice. (laughs) We're all done. But it was incredible because he's really thinking about what affects him. 
For what purpose? Why do we want to be gird up the loins of our mind and, um, and be sober-minded? Look at verse 13. It's so you can set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you guys realize that you actually have to set your hope on God? You actually have to set it there, okay? And you have to reset it there all the time. It's like, it's like a little stand, but it's kind of pointing at the top. You're like, okay, I'm going to set my hope on the grace to be revealed. And you walk away, and you're like, what? You know, and you put it back up there, right? We have to do that regularly. We have to set and reset our hope fully on the grace of God. And he says here the grace is future grace. Look at verse 13. The grace that will be brought to you. This is future grace. So you're like, there's future grace? Yes, there's past grace, there's present grace, there's future grace. This is about future grace. Grace has a chronology, it has a story. Uh, the Latin word is ordo salutis, which is like order of salvation. That There's a, a story to grace. And so there's past grace. We saw some of that in this chapter so far. If you're a Christian today, it says in verse 2 that the Father foreknew you before he made the world and chose you. Before the beginning, before he created any of these things. It says in verse 20 that before he made the world, he, he thought of his son coming and dying for your sins to pay for your debt before he even made the world. That's in verse 20. That's past grace. Uh, Kenny taught that great message last week about how throughout the Old Testament, he sent the prophets to tell us about this coming salvation, and it was for our benefit. That's past grace. Um, around 5 BC, God the Son became a man. He lived a holy life. He died on the cross for your sins so that it says in verse 2, you could be sprinkled clean with his blood. That's actually past grace. That's something he did before in the past for you. Um, then at some point in your life, it says in verse 2, that the Spirit set you apart for God, right? That positional holiness. He set you apart for God. That's past grace in, in your history. Um, it says in verse 3 that the Father caused you to be born again to a living hope. That's past grace as well. But that's not all, right? There's also present grace, right? We see that in verse 4, that the Father right now is keeping an inheritance secure for you. That's present grace. That's grace that's going on right now. And then it says in verse 5 that the Father is guarding you through faith. He's constantly supplying your faith, energizing your faith, making sure that you don't lose faith. That's in verse 5. That's present grace as well. Another present grace is in verses 8 and 9. It says that the Spirit right now is filling your heart with belief and joy and love for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So that you're actually getting like a taste of what's coming now. That's present grace, right? That's the Holy Spirit's present grace. Um, the, the, it's a, we looked at a couple weeks ago in verse 6 and 7 that the Father right now in the trial and suffering you're in right now, he's making sure that your trial is, is um, no longer than it needs to be and, and that it's completely effective for you and that he's going to reward it. That's present grace in your trials right now. But that's not all. There's future grace. Look at verse 13. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you had past grace, present grace. There's future grace for you too. This is a lot of grace, isn't it? You just thought about the past grace probably. There's future grace too. It's the return of Christ that at some point, maybe in our lifetimes, maybe today, he returns on the clouds with a shout. He calls us up, gives us new bodies that are new and, and no longer have the suffering and disease and sin and can fully like, serve others and, and worship him. And, and he'll raise the dead in Christ and give them new bodies. And then he'll craft a brand new world for us to live on, Revelation 21 and 22, where we will have everlasting joy in Jesus. Yes. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, guys. This passage says that holiness runs on grace, and it runs on a mind set on grace. He says specifically future grace. So those are the mental habits. Those are the habits of the mind. We need to change our thoughts. Secondly, we need to change the wants of our hearts. So now we're going into here. 
the wants of your heart. We did this. We're now here. He says we need to change the wants of our hearts because the reality is, is that it's a very good chance that several people in this room, several of us, have areas in our lives that we do not want to change. This happens with Christians. We get hardened in sin, um, and we can have areas of our life that we do not want to hand over. Think of your life, your heart, and your life as a house. Think of it as a house, and all the rooms are different parts of your life. Maybe your thought life, you know, your work life, all these different rooms. And the thing is that the Holy Spirit has come to live in the house. And his name kind of tips off what he's up to because he's the Holy Spirit, right? So he looks at the house and thinks, this will not do, right? He's come to renovate the place. He's come to gut the place, actually. You ever watch those home improvement shows where people come in and you think it's going to be a, a slight thing and they start peeling stuff away and there's all this mold and it's like, rip out that wall. Oh, that was load-bearing. Let's put it back. You know, that kind of thing, right? They get in there and they gut it. Have you ever watched those shows? That's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. He loves to come into a life, see all those things, and he just gets to work on it. And you guys have experienced that. And you guys have experienced, like, as you've been a Christian, him convicting you on new things that you weren't convicted about before. All of a sudden, the Spirit's convicting you about something, you're like, oh, that's wrong too? Like, I've been doing that for a long time. The Spirit's like, we're working on that room today. You know, like, he's convicting you about that thing. And the problem is, is that we can stand at the door of one of those rooms and not want to let him in. And it's very likely that many, maybe even most, in this room have some room of their lives, some area that they want to cordon off from the Lord. Like, hey, I love what you did with the kitchen. I love the living room. Don't go back there, okay? So that's what we do, right? And it's a room where, you know, it might be the room where you keep your money. Notice your money, where you keep your money or the way you use your money or the way you deal with money or your bookkeeping or something like that. You may do that in that room. Um, it may be a room where you keep your porn. It may be a room where you talk to some other woman or some other man and this is not going good places and you know that and you need to stop. Maybe it's in that room. Maybe it's a room where you store your resentments, Anybody have a room they store their resentments in? A place where you go to nurse your grudges, to harbor your unforgiveness, to replay the ways you've been hurt? Maybe it's the room where you medicate yourself, maybe by drink or pills or cutting or some, some way that you medicate yourself in that room. Perhaps it's the room where you are harsh with your kids or you give your spouse the cold shoulder for like the ninth week on a row, right? And we go in front of that room and the Spirit's like, all right, next room, and you're like, no, 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 maybe later. Like, I'm totally open to doing it, just not now. You know, we can do it tomorrow, we can do it in a few weeks, right? That's not the way the Holy Spirit works. Look at verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct. He's like, I don't do partial, right? I do whole houses. And so he wants into that room. He wants all of this, guys. He wants, a lot of times we'll give him this first, words and actions. He's like, yep, we're going to work on that. We're going to get in your mind. We're going to get in your heart. He wants holiness in all of our conduct, the Holy Spirit wants in. He wants to gut it. And you should want it too. That's the thing. We, and you know you should want it. And some of you want to want it. Okay? This passage is great because it helps us to want to want it. Because sometimes you can be this place and you go like, yeah, you know, it's awful. I don't want you in there. I want to want you in there. Help me. And that's what is happening in this text. Peter gives five reasons why you should want to pursue holiness in all your conduct. You should want to want it. Let's take a look at it. Why should we want holiness in all of our conduct and let him into every area? First one is because it's smart. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. What's he saying? Your old way of life was dumb. 
Does that sound unspiritual? It was dumb. That's actually the main motive in the book of Proverbs. Don't do this. It's stupid. Oh, look at that. That's not, that's really dumb. Don't do it. Stop being stupid. Okay? That's very spiritual, actually. Your former way of life was ignorant, it says. I didn't say it. It says it's ignorant. You are demonstrably terrible at running your own life. You need to come to the point where you go like, I am clearly awful at this. I am terrible at running my own life. I am ignorant, right? We resist the Spirit because we think we know better. You know, like, well, you know, I'd report all that, but, you know, it's going to affect me. Um, I think I know better than that. Or I would do this, you know, I would forgive them, but I don't want to let them get away with it. You know, like, we have this sense that, like, we know better. Guys, you don't know better. Your former way of life, it says, was ignorant. You're bad at life. You're actually bad at life. I'm bad at life, too. We're all bad at life, okay? The Holy Spirit is way better at directing your life. Guys, God is the creator of the entire universe, this planet, your body and soul, and all of your relationships. He is much smarter at deciding how to live life, okay? It is crazy to resist the directions of your designer, okay? You got this very complicated product called life. It came with some instructions, and you're like, don't need it. Don't have time for it. I think I know how this works. You don't know how it works. Every area of your life, you should hand over him and it'd be managed better. So first reason, it's smart. Secondly, you can be like your father. Take a look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Guys, the really great news is that um, if you trust in Christ, not only do you go from being an enemy of his to being forgiven, but you become his child. He actually has adopted you. He talks here about your father, right? You want to be like your father. Jesus has paid the great adoption price for you to be one of his kids. And now as his kids, we have this amazing privilege to learn to live like our father, right? Kids imitate their parents, right? They watch us and they copy what we do. Be aware of that. That's important. (laughs) Write that down. They're watching. One of the fun things, though, about our kids as they're getting older, and we have two that are teenagers and we have one younger one, one of the cool things about it is, is the really, like, cool friendship you develop with your kids as they get older. And you can just see it developing as they get older. There's a friendship there that develops, and it's, it's really awesome. I mean, with mine, they are super fun to be with. Um, they've grown up with us. They've, they've grown to like the things we like. They lo- like a lot of the same things, they like going to the beach and like the desert. The desert, like that takes something. That's got to be genetic. They love the desert. They love biking. They love road trips. Um, Mason convinced me yesterday to bike 21 miles around uh, Diamond Valley Lake, which is not all paved, by the way. Um, <laughs> saw a cool snake. Talk about keep going, you know. I was like, keep going. Don't give up. Um, I didn't even know I was going to be able to walk today. But uh, I, I just really enjoy these kids because it's like, I like their, their, their sense of humor because it's kind of your sense of humor, so you like it, you like hearing it, you're like, that's funny because you've got that for me. <laughs> I like that, you know? Um, I benefit from their point of view and their wisdom. They're constantly like, noticing things and like, like, hey, what do you think of that? Or could we do this better that way? I mean, it's just amazing, the wisdom that they're developing. Just I value their opinions. It's amazing because as parenting goes on, as they get older, you like, and I know you, some of you guys will kind of balk at this, but it's amazing because we get to raise our own future friends, you know? And they, they take on our likes and they take on our, our, our desires and you get to actually develop a friendship with them. I know there's the authority and all that. Don't get at me about that. But I'm just saying what's happening here is, is authority diminishes as they get older, that there's a friendship developing. This is super cool. Um, they become like us. And holiness, guys, is about the Father inviting us to learn His ways 
and to actually learn to enjoy the things he enjoys and to actually become like him and actually enjoy fellowship with him. Because it turns out you'll actually enjoy being a Christian a whole lot more the more he works holiness in your life because you're like, we like all the same things, right? There's a Nacho Libre quote I won't do there. But we like the same things. As he changes our hearts from the inside out, we actually start to love the same things he loves. We become kids that enjoy him. We, we, we're kids that he enjoys and entrusts with his work. And so why should we be holy in all our conduct? Um, because we can be like our father. Why else should we be holy in all our conduct? Why should we open all the doors of our life to him and not keep him out of certain areas? The third one, fear. That surprise you? Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What's the motive here? Fear. And you might be like, well, I don't know that Christians should be motivated to holiness out of fear. Doesn't perfect love cast out fear? I don't get why this would be. And all I can say to you is like, it says fear. So conduct yourselves with fear. I didn't make it up. There it is, fear. You're like, maybe it means something else. The Greek word is like phobos. It's like where we get phobia from. So I'm sure it's not real fear, right? It's the word phobia. Okay, it's fear. Okay, what are we supposed to be afraid of here? God. What are we supposed to be afraid of from God? Now here, and there's different opinions on this, but I, I do not think he's instructing believers in this passage to fear hell. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think it's fear of hell that is a motivation for holiness in this passage. You might bring me others, but I'm saying in this text. And the reason is the tense. Look at the tense. What tense is it? He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, maybe you can't see it there, who judges impartially. The tense of that judges impartially, it isn't future tense. It's not like who will judge everyone impartially. That's not what's going on in this text, okay? I'm not saying other texts. But in this text, it's actually present tense. It's a present participle. So it would literally read the one who is judging right now. So in what way is God judging even right now, present tense, in a way that should make us fear and make us pursue holiness? In what way does he judge right now? And the way he judges right now, guys, is through fatherly discipline. If you look at 1 Peter 4, 17, he talks about judgment beginning at the household of God. That's also ongoing right now. What's going on? Fatherly discipline. Do yourself a favor. Take a look at Hebrews 12. You have to see this passage. It's a beautiful passage. I would love to preach on just that. Um, it's actually very nicely laid out and preachable. Hebrews 12, 5 says this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline them? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Beside this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, earthly fathers. They disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness by all who have been trained by it. I, I believe that what Peter's talking about here is that we should fear this discipline. This is a reason why we should pursue holiness. And you might say, well, like, oh, it's just discipline? I thought it was about. And I'd be like, have you ever been disciplined by the Lord? 
There's no just discipline. A lot of you guys are like, you guys, your eyes got big because you remember how the Lord has disciplined you. This is painful, very painful. Realize, though, that God never uses more force than is necessary, but also realize we are very hard-headed, and so sometimes we need a lot of force. And I think if we went around the room, we could all tell our testimonies of salvation. We could all tell our testimonies of being disciplined as well. And what he says here is that we should watch out for that. We should let him into the room because we fear discipline, guys. It's always out of love, though. God always disciplines us out of love. He never does it out of anger. He never does it to excess. It's always out of love. It says in Hebrews, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, right? And so we can actually fear the Lord even though we love him and we know he loves us because we know that his love can be a tough love sometimes. And so there's this, I know he loves me and I love him, but I do fear him. Why? Because his love can be tough at times. That he will do whatever it takes to redirect us, to bring us back from destruction. It's always for our good, guys, but it's always better not to do it. Okay? Like, always better not to be disciplined. Okay? Always better not to need it. It's always for good, but the route is painful. If you're a Christian harboring sin right now, and I want to be serious with you guys, um, if there is in some area of your life, in the, in the back room of your life, some area that you're harboring sin, I want you to know that you are in great danger. Seriously, you're in great danger. And I would just say, if that's you and you're like, yeah, later, read Hebrews 12 today. You're in great danger. Your father will not let you prosper in that sin, okay? Be afraid, open the door, repent today. Why should we be holy in all our conduct? Fear of discipline. Next one, fourth, why should you be holy in all your conduct? Because you can. This one's really cool. Because you can. Why not do it if you can? Look at verse 18 knowing that you're a ransom from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Our sinful lives, guys, they not only made us enemies of God before we were saved, they made us slaves to sin. It's not just there was a penalty, but there was a power over you. Jesus says all who practice sin are a slave to sin. It's enslaving. And this kind of enslaving has happened for generations. Look at verse 18. The feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers— isn't that interesting? These sin patterns that you deal with probably came from your forefathers, right? There's a certain pattern of sin that's been handed down to you by your family, through nature and nurture, um, by your nation. We have certain national idols. We have certain national sins that we all are, you know, they're our forefathers. Um, we are people that we come from. We can feel totally enslaved to these patterns. And you hear this from people. They're, they're worried that, like, they have a solid line of horrendous marriages in their family. You know, will I repeat that? They have a solid line of horrendous addictions. Will they repeat that? Um, they have a solid line of just angry, tyrannical people or, or, or abuse. Um, and we could feel destined to repeat it. But guys, the good news of the gospel is that we've been ransomed out of the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. You don't have to repeat those sin patterns. You've been ransomed out by Jesus' blood. Is that good news or what? Is that a news that people out there that don't know Jesus would love to hear? Because a lot of times we put the gospel out as like, you know, he'll forgive all your sins if you trust in him, but you're going to have to change your life. Okay, as if that's the bad news. They're both good news, guys. It's good news to be ransomed out of the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, guys. It's good news to be saved and delivered from the power of sin. These are both good news, okay? So don't give one as the good news and the bad news is you've got to give up your sin. Like if the Holy Spirit's coming into a person, they want to give up their sin. The gospel is the good news, guys, that Jesus takes away not only the penalty of your sin, but the power of your sin. He not only gives you forgiveness, he gives you freedom. That word ransom, take a look at it. He says we've been ransomed. It's as if 
God found you in this first century slave market, and he bought you out to freedom. That's what the gospel's about. It's about freedom. And discipleship is learning how to live in that freedom because you get the forgiveness right away. Freedom's your gift right away, but then you're like, I don't really know how to do this, and that's where discipleship comes in. We learn to walk in that freedom. That's a process, but it's yours. So why should we want to be holy in all our conduct? Because we can cool thing about God the Father is when he adopted us, he did something that physical adoption can't do. He changed our DNA. Isn't that amazing? So you adopt a kid, and they, become your, and they take on a lot of your family things, but they don't have your DNA. He changed our spiritual DNA when he brought us to him by implanting the Holy Spirit within us. So why should you want to be holy in all your conduct? Because you can. Lastly, quickly, because of your great price. Look at verse 18. Second half. Not with perishable things. You were purchased, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. God bought you out of hell and slavery, not with silver or gold. We'd appreciate that. Any way to get bought out of slavery and hell, we would appreciate, right? But not just with silver or gold. What is it? If you're a Christian this morning, you were bought with blood. Not metaphorically. Like you were bought with real blood. You guys see blood often? I'm a veterinarian. I see blood all the time. I don't like seeing my own blood, but I'm fine with seeing other blood. Um, you were bought, guys, with actual blood. I think that requires some meditation. You were bought with precious blood. You were bought with, Acts talks about God's blood. You were bought with Jesus' blood. You were bought with Jesus' blood. You were bought, guys, with holy blood. What's holy blood? It says like a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the blood of a man, lived a full life here, God in the flesh, who lived a completely holy life, totally separate from sin and totally devoted to the glory of God. A, a man that deserved to like have an Elijah type, you know, leaving, right? With the flaming chariot or something like that, right? That's the kind of leaving he deserved. And what did he do? He died for your sins. He did have an, a leaving like that. But before that, he died for your sins. It, holy blood, guys. His actual blood was given for you. I want you to say right now, I know it's kind of charismatic, for me. I want you to actually say it. For you. Right? For you. You were bought with blood. You feel the weight of that? You ever feel yourself as being bought or owned? Like you're bought with blood, which means he owns you. He bought you. It's actually a really great feeling when you really have that sink in. That Like, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. You know, I was bought with blood, right? Do you see yourself as bought? Do you see yourself as Jesus dying on the cross, draining his lifeblood to cover your sins and to buy you? And so the question would be from here is, won't you hand over every area of your life to him? Is there any door in your life, any room that you are unwilling to open? knowing that, knowing that you've been bought with his precious blood. Because guys, when we refuse to repent of some ongoing sin, we're making a value judgment, aren't we? What's more precious to me? Right? What's more precious to me? Is it the precious blood of Jesus or the preciousness of my sin? We make that choice all the time. And you say, the precious blood of Jesus. Is there any sin, guys, in your life that's ongoing that's worth more than his precious blood? And so the challenge this morning as we, as we worship is that we would open all the doors of our heart and our life, that we would let him in, that we would want to do that. You know, he's not banging the door down. It's like, nope, come on in, I'm ready, right? Um, that he bought us 
and that we want to live a holy life in all our conduct. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your powerful word. And I just thank you for the way, even in my own heart, I'm thinking like, being in this passage, I want, I don't just want to want it, I do want holiness in all my conduct. I want it right now. I pray, Lord, you'd help that to stick in us. But even for right now, Lord, we just pray that this would be a time of repentance before communion and that we would just let go of everything that we're holding on to. And Lord, we are well aware from past experiences of this is that we're so much happier when we're repentant. When we're repentant, we're so much happier when that conviction is taken away and we know that we are in the place we need to be with you. Lord, help us to stop fighting our own joy and help us to let you in fully. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.